The one-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine is approaching, but the war looks far from over with the fight still fiercely raging on. The US and Germany have only recently provided tanks to assist the Ukrainian forces, while Russia is reportedly planning a major offensive to mark the anniversary. Will the war intensify or expand this year? Is there a chance of a truce? How will the war end? For some insight, we connect with Dr. Sonia Mykak, Research Fellow at the Australian National University Centre for European Studies. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Uh, can we begin with the assessment of the current situation in Ukraine? Although Russia has suffered months of setbacks, losing battles in critical cities and provinces like Kiev and Kharkiv, the status looks largely stalemate at present with no clear winner. Would Russia's impending major offensive be a game changer? Not necessarily, because the inadequacies within the Russian military, um, such as the fact that they are relying on very poorly trained recruits, uh, some of their armaments you know, are uh, old and not in good order, those inadequacies within the Russian military remain. The second point to make is that Ukraine is also preparing a counteroffensive. Now, this could be very successful given recent developments in international support. Um, just over the last few weeks, for example, Ukraine has been finally given uh, hard uh, armaments such as tanks, you know, those tanks that Ukraine's been asking for for, for many, many, many months. Um, precise missiles like HIMARS. So these recent developments in international support put Ukraine in a very strong position. And we need to remember that Ukrainian forces have proven that they can reclaim occupied territory very successfully. We need to look back to August 29, a counteroffensive which began then on August 29, resulted in Ukraine reclaiming 9,000 square kilometres of territory that had been occupied by Russian forces. So... Uh, yes, you know, if, if Russia is preparing um, a new offensive, of course, you know, that is, um, you know, a very serious concern. But at the same time, you know, Ukraine may just be ready this time. And in fact, in the last year, if there's anything the international community has learned is that the morale of the Ukrainian forces is hard to, uh, well, beat. Uh, it was, in fact, supposed to be a short-lived war. And when Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th last year, some predicted that Ukraine would fall in a matter of days. But instead, the bravery and resistance of the Ukrainian people stunned the world. Again, going back to that morale. Were you also surprised and what else caught experts like yourself as most striking throughout the course of the war? No, I wasn't surprised. Mm. Um, I, we need to understand uh, two things. Now, first of all, the, the war began in 2014 mm. when Russia annexed Crimea and invaded and occupied parts of eastern Ukraine. Now, over that eight years, almost 15,000 Ukrainian soldiers and civilians had been killed. So the Ukrainian people had been living with war and the threat of further invasion, you know, for eight years. And the full-scale invasion that we witnessed on February 24 was actually a further, um, rather than a first invasion. You know, it was not a first invasion of Ukraine, it was a further invasion. That's one thing to understand. The second thing to understand is, you know, what is behind this war? You know, what is the backstory to that? Now, 
basically uh, Putin's agenda is driven by Russian imperialist ideology. And what I, what I mean by that is that Putin has imperialistic ambitions to take control of Ukrainian territory and re-establish a Russian empire. Um, now, such ambitions date back hundreds of years, actually, to the Tsarist Empire and then later to the Soviet Union. Um, and Putin himself has never accepted the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So that's one of his aims. And that aim is also um, driven by the fact that this kind of imperialist ideology does not accept that Ukraine is an independent um, nation, that Ukrainians are a separate people with their own language, culture and identity. And that's the ideology that lies at the base of Putin's actions here. And that's the ideology that Ukrainians understand and understood. And so they understood when they were attacked by Russia that they were fighting not only for their own land and their own territory, but for their very right to exist as Ukrainians. Mm. And, you know, that's why we saw, um, you know, that, that very striking uh, resistance and resilience that you mentioned. And in fact, that, that very imperialistic ideology put forward by Putin is even divisive within Russia. And we go back to those poorly trained recruits in the Russian military. It's not just about their age, is it? Uh, it's under which circumstances they're recruited and under, I suppose, what goal. And if they don't share the motive as the Russian president, sure. they wouldn't necessarily incline to fight at the same level as the Ukrainian forces, as you've said, who are fighting for not just their independence, but... Uh, their sense of being and who they are as a Ukrainian mm. people. Mm. No, you're absolutely right. Um, we, right from the beginning um, of, you know, of the full-scale invasion, the world witnessed um, how morale has an impact mm. you know, on military defeats mm. and victories. And certainly, um, you know, the Ukrainian forces, um, both civilians and the military itself, um, has, you know... The, they know what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their very existence, their very right to live on their own land, to speak their own language, to practice their own culture, to, to keep their own uh, sense of identity, their own Ukrainian national identity. Now, the Russian forces, the Russian troops have never um, had that motivation. And so, um, yes, you know, we, we've seen right from the beginning the impact that uh, morale can have in terms of military victories and defeat. Uh, taking a look at uh, sort of the regions that Putin wants to take control of, we understand that Putin is seeking to expand the area Ukraine control of Russian forces, but can we revisit which specific regions he's targeting and why those regions are strategically important? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, look, we, we know that Putin's original aim was to occupy the capital city, Kyiv, um, depose the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, and then install a puppet government, and that would therefore have given him control of the whole of Ukraine. Now, that was what he apparently predicted would only take three days <laughs> to happen. Um, and, and as we've mentioned, really larger to the resistance of the Ukrainian people, um, you know, he failed in that aim. Now the Russian strategy is to focus on eastern Ukraine uh, and the south of Ukraine. Now, this is an area of great importance, firstly because strategically that would give Russia control of um, the land 
away from the Russian border of Ukraine in the east down to Crimea. Mm -hmm. And as I've mentioned, Russia annexed Crimea mm -hmm. in 2014. So Russia has been in control of, of Crimea since 2014. Now, the, this, this would give what what we call a land corridor that, that Russia would then control, you know, that whole section of land from the Russian border down to uh, Crimea. That's the strategic importance of that eastern Ukraine to him. But on a, on a kind of more general level, um, Ukraine itself is very, very good real estate. Um, mm. I mean, it, it, has, it has exceptionally fertile agricultural land, mm. Um, nearly a quarter of the world's most fertile soil is actually located in Ukraine. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we know now, we see the effect on um, the world's food supply. Ukraine's the world's fourth largest grain exporter. Mm. Um, it's the fourth largest producer and exporter of agricultural goods in general. Um, but certainly in the East, um, that is an area which is very rich in metal and mineral deposits. Mm. So we're talking about coal, iron ore, natural gas, um, magnesium, mercury, and you know, many, many metals. And it's a steel and iron industrial centre, actually, there. Um, Ukraine also has very highly developed heavy industries, advanced mm. shipbuilding, for example. That's mm. located in the east of Ukraine and in the south. So, you know, this, this area, whilst being strategically important for what Putin wants to achieve, it's also just, a, a, you know, a, an area that is very rich um, and very important economically. Mm. It's rich in resources. So there seems to be a double the reason why Putin would want to claim those exactly. lands. We're one year into the war. It appears a global consensus is that Putin's imperial fantasies have woken up to oblique reality, while Ukraine's dreams are stronger than ever with, again, their morale seemingly unbreakable. How would you grade, based on your expertise, Russia's tactics so far? Look, Russia, surprisingly, I guess, to the world, I mean, we all um, had great visions of what the Russian military uh, was capable of how powerful it was, and mm. to many people, observers, surprise, Russia has shown you know military failures, and certainly I think a military expert would be best placed to comment you know specifically mm. on that. What I can say though is that, um, in my view, Putin's perhaps greatest mistake is that he completely misunderstood the Ukrainian people. Mm. I mean, it seems that he really did not understand their strength of will, uh, their resistance. Um, their resilience, the fact that they would fight to retain not only their land but their own Ukrainian identity. Um, you, a little earlier on, you asked, you know, whether there was something that struck me, you know, in 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 what we've been seeing, um, and what I, you know, a factor that I found very striking. Well, this civilian resistance, um, I think, is something which, you know, is is really. Uh, groundbreaking, I think, and, and, mm. and, you know, really striking. I mean, in November, there was an opinion poll taken which showed that 98% of the population said that they would rather be without electricity, mm. without heating, without running water, than surrender to Russia. Now, that is at the time of um, Ukrainian winter, uh, at a time when... Uh, 
you know, you probably know that Russian forces have been targeting energy infrastructure mm. in, in missile and rocket attacks. And so the winter, you know, has been a very, very difficult one for the civilian population with um, blackouts, you know, lack of heating, um, lack of, lack of um, electricity, lack of gas, running water even. Um, and yet the Ukrainian people um, are saying that they, you know, insist continue to fight now that kind that's the kind of resistance that we saw right um, after you know since February 24 since the full-scale invasion when we actually saw you know not only um, people joining the armed forces the actual Ukrainian military but volunteer battalions you know local 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 civilians who were not in the military who had not had any training who were prepared to actually join uh, local units of territorial defence who were prepared to make a weapon in their own home even. Mm. Um, and, and that sort of war effort has also been supported by a very strong volunteer movement. Mm. So we're talking about people who are not in the military but who are organising themselves as civilians into groups and assisting the war effort. You know, we're talking about women getting together and making uniforms for mm. the soldiers, uh, cooking food and having that taken um, to the soldiers at the front, uh, making camouflage nets, uh, making candles and and heating elements for for the soldiers to use. So we've seen, you know, the whole of Ukrainian society come together, mm. um, you know, in this fight against Russian aggression. Mm. Uh, and not to draw the obvious comparison, but it, it is a little bit reminiscent of what happened in the Korean War for us, too, I think. Uh, people just maybe not necessarily qualified to fight in, in the front lines of the war, but them actually joining in to sort of support the war in the best way they can. Um, women, as you've said, sometimes children, too. Uh, maybe this question is out of reach, but I have to ask it anyway, uh, Dr. Mykak. Uh, is there any chance that... President Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin will sit down together and seek negotiations or truce to end the war. Well, in my view, there will be no possibility of negotiation without a military defeat of Russia. Mm. Uh, Zelensky will not negotiate while Russian forces continue to attack Ukraine and Russian forces occupy Ukrainian territory. I mean, Zelensky simply could not do that. The Ukrainian population would not. Um, agree to that. Mm. Now, it's it's interesting. I, I guess at this point we should remember the words of um, the NATO uh, fellow Stoltenberg, mm. um, who has said a few weeks ago, he said that the more military success Ukraine has, the stronger Ukraine's position will be in future negotiations. So, you know, I, I think that until there is a military defeat of Russia, we really won't see any serious negotiation. But one thing that I should point out, um, and your listeners may be interested to know, that Zelensky has tabled um, a peace plan. He's tabled a kind of roadmap mm. to end the war, and he's actually called this his 10-point peace plan. Mm. And, you know, the, these are issues that would need to be addressed um, before, you know, the signing of a peace treaty. And he's actually, he, ta he started to table that peace plan back in November at various international forums like the G20. And it doesn't seem to get a lot of attention, the media actually, or I, th I think not enough attention. Mm. But um, so, you know, there is a way forward, but it does require the withdrawal of Russian troops, you know, from Ukraine. 
Uh, Dr. Mike Keck, because we're a little bit short on time, I would like to skip on to our last question of the day. Uh, of course, a big question of what comes next. How will the next stage of the war be different from the first year? Some reports suggest wider conflict involving nuclear warheads. Is there a possibility of war expanding to the wider European conflict this year? Well, given what I, I said earlier on, that Putin's aim is to recreate a Russian empire, hmm. um, if he were to actually be victorious and take control of Ukraine, he would not stop with Ukraine. And certainly in immediate danger would be the neighbouring countries, Poland, uh, particularly Moldova, the Baltic states, you know, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania. Now, that, there was always, there has always been a possibility of the war expanding beyond the borders of mm. Ukraine. We've even seen some missiles, you know, overreach and, and, and you know, go into other, other countries' territories. So I don't think that that's any different from what's been there, you know, before. What I think is is possibly going to change this year, well, certainly, as I said, with Ukraine being given tanks, uh, it's now asking for fighter jets. Um, certainly, we may see a stronger Ukraine militarily, um, but I think we're also going to see a Ukraine that looks for legal um, in initiatives, le international legal um, initiatives. So, for example, Ukraine, I think, is going to focus on the designation of Russia as a terrorist state mm. and the expulsion of Russia from the United Nations Security Council. I, I think that, you know, that that, that will be a, an added sort of strategic um, level for, you know, Ukraine as it, mm. as it struggles to, um, to stay alive. Mm. So the fighting will continue, and they will also have a legal angle to this all, maybe to hold Russia accountable for their war crimes. Yes, that's, that's certainly something that um, Zelensky has been working very heavily within the last few weeks in particular. Um, he's been talking to uh, European nations and to the United States and, and um, Britain about um, creating a kind of a tribunal uh, mm. in which not only Putin himself, but, you know, individual uh, military personnel who mm. have committed those atrocities that we've seen, you know, rape, torture, uh, murder, that they be held to account. Thank you very much, Dr. Sonia Mykak, for speaking to us this morning. Uh, we appreciate your insights, and we hope to speak to you again in the future. Thank you very much for having me. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.